Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabon, and today I'm joined by Yusuf Sheriff. Yusuf is the founding director of the Columbia Global Centers in Tunis. He's a Tunis-based PhD researcher at Leiden University's Institute of Area Studies, a Carnegie brackets endowment, close brackets, civic activist network member, and a regular contributor and commentator on Maghreb affairs with a whole host of think tanks and research centers across the world. He's done some fascinating work on, on all issues relating to the Maghreb. He's a former expert at the Tunisian Institute for Strategic Studies. He holds an Achieving Master of Arts in International Relations from King's College London and a Fulbright Master of Arts in Classical Studies from Columbia University. Youssef, thank you so much for joining us today. You're in sunny Tunis. I'm in snowy Lancaster. Our worlds are meeting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Um, but you know, on politics, the two countries have some similarities these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we may well get on to that later on. Um, <laughs> let's let's see where we go. But um, Yusuf, it's a real pleasure talking to you today. Um, I've been really enjoying your your various bits of commentary and analysis and your work more broadly. But I must ask, as someone who trained as an archaeologist, and a classicist. How did you end up in politics? Well, you know, in these things, there is always a story. So <laughs> since I was a kid, I was um, interested in archaeology and ancient history, Indiana Jones, all these things. And I grew up in, uh, in Tunisia, which has a lot of archaeological sites. So I really grew up in archaeology. Um, but at the same time, I always, I was always interested in international politics and, uh, you know, the, uh, the Middle East, uh, conflicts and, uh, really international politics in general. So I was always, um, trying, first of all, to, uh, listen to people around me, especially in my family, talking about these issues, uh, but also, um, especially when I was a kid, we was more watching TV uh, than reading, but I was always interested in these things. But by then, uh, Tunisia was a dictatorship. So it was not really an option to study political science, international relations. Um, it was possible, but everyone would tell me, you know, you have to be careful, you have to do something else, because if you do this, um, either you will find yourself jobless or uh, you will um, uh, you will end up in, uh, you will end up co-opted by the system. So uh, I don't know how accurate that was, but in any case, I opted for my second best um, loved hobby, which is uh, archaeology and ancient history. And I did my uh, so BA and several archaeological excavations and then masters um, that took me from uh, Tunis to the American University in Beirut to Columbia University. And that's I got my master's from Colombia in late 2009, um, came back to Tunis, of course, couldn't find a job because jobs in archaeology are very scarce. <laughs> um, and then in 2011, the Arab Spring happened. So that was the time when I said, well, now I, I can do it. And so I went on for another master's, um, thanks to the Achieving Scholarship. Um, 
and I went to the UK to get my master's in international relations and I started uh, reading more and uh, also I started writing first of all for media outlets and think tanks and then slowly uh, joining some academic publications, some working groups and then uh, embarking on the uh, PhD track. So that's more or less the story why I went from um, classics to international relations but the thing that I often say is that um, in a way international relations is an update or an upgrade of uh, classics or of classical studies because you're actually studying things that um, you, you see trends that always existed between the, the fight between civilizations and empires and um, and, and, and uh, international economy, etc. You study them in the past and then you study them in the uh, present. Uh, sometimes you even you, you can even use uh, similar methodologies or, um, or theories. Well, there's so much to unpack there, um, not least your final remark, which is fascinating and, and really interesting. But before we get to that, Indiana Jones, really? <laughs> You're not the first person like, to like, mention that. But uh, just, I mean, go on, please. No, no, I've got to say, I mean, this is, I think most kids were so, um, uh, so intrigued by that movie uh, in, in the 80s and the 90s. Um, I don't know, Simon, maybe you as well, but uh, yeah, of course, that's something of course. that uh, you find across the board. Yeah, I mean, so many people have mentioned him um, in, in the various, uh, various discussions I've had, but uh, you're not the first person to say that, that Indiana Jones inspired their career choices on this very podcast. <laughs> so you're in illustrious company. But, um, <laughs> great, great. <laughs> let's let's unpack that that last point a little bit, Yusuf. Please, um, the you're you're drawing this this interesting parallel then between archaeology and classics more broadly and international politics today. Is this just a, a little anecdote that you share, or or do you think there's something more substantive to it? No, I think there is something substanti uh, substantive to it because, of course, one needs to be careful not to fall in the um, generaliz generalization, but also in um, in Orientalism, especially that uh, when you look at texts from uh, you know, the, the Greek and Roman authors, you always have um, plant racism and uh, stereotypes of, of the East and, and all these things. So um, when we read these classical texts about, um, let's say, the, um, uh, the, the Thucydidean, uh, Thucydides about uh, the, the um, Greek-Persian uh, Greek wars or um, other authors um, about the different conflicts that um, happened in during the Greek and Roman times, um, we you know we, we will find a lot of these stereotypes. So we need to be careful. But still, we see how people used to think about um, the interactions between states, how um, people used to um, portray the others, um, and and um, that's where you see a lot of continuity um, nowadays. Um, by by different politicians, um, I think you can you can if if, if we talk about Thucydides um, and uh, other uh, authors from uh, the classics, maybe today you will count them among uh, the right wing thinkers uh, in the way they um, they used to um, uh, conceptualize the their neighbors and their uh, enemies. But um, that's 
um, that I mean, you see trends that uh, continue. Um, and now, I mean, any first, any undergraduate uh, student in international relations, one of the first texts they study um, are these texts from uh, classic authors about um, um, about the uh, about usually about the Mediterranean, uh, and now more and more there is the inclusion of non-Western uh, texts about international relations, um, because I think um, what uh, I mean how the discipline of international relations started at first, um, it was you know, almost everything started with Westphalia in Europe, um, but then with time, like most disciplines. Um, scholars started digging more and uh, thinking that actually you need to look way beyond that uh, 1648 um, uh, mark and try to link um, what is happening in our world today to um, the longer term trajectory of um, of history. Yeah. Okay. That's that's really interesting stuff, and I can see where you're you're coming from here. Let's. Go into your into your master's study then, because I think that sets up a lot of what follows with your analysis and your commentary and your your PhD work. Uh, you end up at, at at London at King's College, and you you start getting interested more more explicitly in in political questions. What was it that you were focusing on there? Were you focusing on more Maghrebi issues, on civil society, or was this more sort of general reflections at this point? So the the funny thing is that um, by then the, the by then my supervisor for for that uh, master's thesis was an expert on Russia, and by okay. then I was thinking about working on uh, Russia in the Middle East which is something that always fascinated me. Fascinated me. Yeah. But then, um, at the same time, I the, the question, especially we're talking about in the 2011, 12, 13, the main thing that was happening by then was not yet Russia, although that was something that was coming, um, but it was the relationship between Arab states themselves, between, um, uh, and I, I came from Tunisia, so between Maghreb countries and Gulf countries, uh, between Maghreb countries and Turkey. And I remember I was, I mean, most of the discussions around me were, had a lot of conspiracy theories. So I wanted really to understand this relationship between the Maghreb and uh, the Gulf from or between North Africa, not just the Maghreb, so, because I did Egypt as well by then. Um, so I was trying to understand this relationship, and I went to my supervisor. I thought, "Look, I mean, I really want to work on this um, Russia in in the Middle East, and you're the expert, but um, maybe this is not for now, and I want to work on this." And she said, "Yes, that's um, completely fine." And so I worked actually. My, my dissertation was on Maghreb and the Gulf, which later on became or is now my the, the topic of my um, PhD um, ongoing work uh, and also a topic that uh, on which I wrote a lot in um, with several think tanks and some in some edited books etc uh, and it is a question that is still uh, now I mean more than 10, 10 years later it is still something that um, uh, that is attracting a lot of attention and that on the ground has a lot of impact yeah, I think you're right there. It is attracting a lot of attention. It's incredibly important. And to be honest, that's how I first came across your work, reading some of this stuff on, on Gulf state engagement with the uh, Maghreb and, and North Africa more broadly. So mm. uh, 
I, I think you're doing fascinating work in this area, Yusuf. It's really, really interesting to read it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's actually going on, though, please? Because I think there's a lot of a lot of assumptions here. There's a lot of misunderstandings, um, a lot of lazy analysis. So what is actually going on when we're talking about relations between the Maghreb and the Gulf, and perhaps more explicitly, Gulf states' investment in the Maghreb? So this um, this topic actually is um, not widely addressed in international relations. Um, first of all, in general, you will find a lot of um, uh, things about um, uh, MENA, um, I mean, MENA Europe or MENA US um, relations. Uh, you will find a lot of um, things about the conflict in the Middle East themselves, I mean, several um, books and uh, articles about these topics. But if you look to um, Arab-Arab relations, and uh, especially between two big um, uh, complexes like uh, the Maghreb on the one hand and uh, the Gulf on the other hand, you will find um, little... um, I mean, just a few a few articles here and there written, um, and even I mean, in, in general, the Maghreb was kind of neglected. Um, first of all, neglected by a lot of um, uh, Middle East uh, Middle East by the sense of Levantine and Egyptian scholars, yeah. um, but also neglected by um, Western scholars who work on uh, this um, part of the world. And um, so that's that's kind of the gap that I found now. You're right. I mean, uh, the the discussion is full of generalities. Uh, I mean, and we, we <laughs> sadly we all contributed in uh, in in writing these uh, very general uh, uh, articles and uh, commentaries because uh, the problem is that you don't have. The full freedom to um, to access uh, data, but also to ac- or to access people. Um, Tunisia was kind of uh, until uh, I mean, maybe until now, maybe until not so long ago, it was kind of the exception where you can talk uh, freely with people uh, who had uh, positions in uh, politics and diplomacy and international economy and get. Um, uh, you know, their full perception without fearing anything. But apart from that, in the region, you have to be very careful uh, whom you talk to, and even universities will not give you the, um, the clearance to go and interview people in places like um, Libya or the UAE. Uh, I mean, we know what happened recently there uh, for to some students, or Egypt, even worse. Mm-hmm. So. So there is actually, it's not just that uh, authors are lazy, but there is a lack of data because of the problems um, in, because of the situation in these different countries. Um, Now, when we talk about um, the Gulf, and uh, of course, we often say the Gulf, but in fact, uh, we say that because it's easier than saying uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, and then when you talk about these, you have to add Egypt and Turkey because these are the main players in uh, the Maghreb, and yeah. or some of the main players in the in the Maghreb. And um, for I, th- I think for the first period of uh, of the 2010 decade, um, the Cold War between these two sides 
uh, was actually um, taking place a lot in uh, the Maghreb. I mean, Libya was uh, is to a large extent a victim uh, or the largest victim of this um, Cold War. And uh, part of the reason why Libya is in such a state today is because they actually um, invested in uh in expanding the, the, the proxy war, their proxy war there. Um, and even today, after their entente, uh, the country is still um, destroyed. But you see it. I mean, Libya today, uh, you have less conflict, you have less violence. Um, and that coincided with the uh, Al-Ula agreement and the different agreements that were signed between um, Turkey and Qatar on the one hand, and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and uh, the UAE on the other hand. Um, but that game also impacted um uh, so in Libya, it was military, but in places like Tunisia uh, and to certain extent Morocco, their impact was on um, society, on political polarization. Uh, they did um, impact how media and social media uh, portrayed th- things. And uh, y- you will be surprised if you come to Tunis or if you go to Morocco, um, you will find some of the words that uh, are widely used in um, uh, in, um, in Emirati, Saudi, Egyptian media. You will find these um, among people who are, who are uh, opposed to the Islamists. Um, and then you will also find the same words that are used by Al Jazeera or TRT um, among the groups who are uh, close to Nahda in Tunisia or the PGD in Morocco. Uh, so the, the, I mean that um, that Gulf um, slash Turkey Egypt involvement in the Maghreb uh, really had a deep impact militarily in Libya and um, uh, politically and socially in um, Tunisia and uh, Morocco. Um, and finally, the, the the one point you mentioned about um, investments. So they their investment overall in this region uh, is minimal compared to their investment in places like Egypt, for instance, or even Jordan. Um, but uh, they kept um, they kept pledging investments um, and uh, in a way saying to the uh, Maghribi leaders that, well, if you behave the way we want, uh, you will get more, um, you will get more of, of this. And um, whether that worked or not, that's something that we're, many of us are looking at. But uh, uh, I think that partly explains why they did not really invest because until now they still don't find the uh, uh, the valuable partner that uh, that uh, will accept all their conditions. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting, and I think that set of reflections points to the the myriad complexities and contingencies of of these interplays between the, the the sort of the shorthand maghreb gulf states if you will with the caveat of, mm-hmm. of what you've just said um, before diving into that a little bit more yusuf because i think it's it's fascinating and really important there was something that you said earlier in your answer about the maghreb states broadly being ignored by other um, scholars from the region and working on the region. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit. And why do you think that is? I mean, my instinct says you're right. But why? Why why is that the case? 
So I don't have the figures now, but um, I, I've read a few um, data about this, and uh, the Maghreb is the least covered region uh, in the Middle East when it comes to people working on uh, political science and international relations. Now, as for the why, I think, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, it's more my perception than anything else, but um, I think for one thing, this region is a very francophone region. So to come here and to work here, um, you either are a perfect um, Arabic speaker, but then you need to be an Arabic speaker who speaks uh, the, the local dialect, yeah. uh, because using Fusha Arabic will be a bit difficult, <laughs> um, or easily will be um, the, uh, I mean, to master French as well as Arabic and um, and work on this region. And that um, that's something actually you don't necessarily find among um, Middle Eastern uh, scholars, but also you don't find about among um, European and American scholars who work on the region. Uh, you don't find it a lot. So automatically, the 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 preference is for um, the Middle East per se, um, and, uh, and and the Gulf as well. Uh, also, I mean, this region was not very exciting, if I may say, um, and um, places like Libya or Algeria were always extremely closed. Um, places like um, Tunisia or, uh, I mean, or Mauritania, nothing used to happen there or very few things used to happen there before 2011. Um, although I, I need to say that in the Maghreb, maybe Morocco is a little bit of an exception. Uh, several um, uh, researchers went there and uh, we have several publications, be it, uh, I mean, and not just political science and international relations, um, but uh, uh, because Morocco first was open to uh, the, also to the non-French uh, world, but also Morocco um, was um, uh, accepting or, or politically slightly more open than um, the other countries in its neighborhood. Uh, but still, I mean, overall, it, there, there is a lack of, um, of uh, expertise or a lack of uh, scholarship on the region. Um, of course, this is, I'm, I'm talking here about, um, again, I need to specify, I'm talking about um, scholarship in political science and international uh, affairs or relations in English. Yeah, because sure. then you move to French, you will find a lot of work uh, done in French. Mm -hmm. But in French, um, um, I mean, the, the scholarship on political science and international relations in French is not huge, um, I mean, compared to what you find in the UK or in the US. Um, with French, it's a lot of anthropology, a lot of sociology, a lot of history, um, more than um, the use of um, international relations theory or, um, um, or political science um, Especially the the uh, uh, anglophone type of uh, the, the English slash American type of political science. So um, I think that's the the the, the explanation that um, I found. But again, here I'm just thinking that's how I uh, I see it. Um, but this changed or started to change after 2011. First of all, the region became at the heart of Arab politics, mm -hmm. uh, be Tunisia from where the Arab Spring started and where actually democracy worked more or less for a decade, and um, Libya, which became this 
a huge proxy um, a proxy war uh, scene uh, where you have pretty much everyone apart from the Chinese um, being there having uh, their uh, proxies or, or having their interests um, armed and um, also um, I mean uh, Algeria and Morocco uh, with their uh, the revival of their uh, eternal conflict but also then uh, later on with, uh, with the issue of energy with Algeria everyone is now looking at Algeria as possibly the uh, savior of Europe while I mean of course um, experts on energy are skeptical about this one but um, anyway so the, this the, this Maghreb region that was uh, neglected for decades because it was um, less easy to discover by scholars. It was less exciting as a terrain uh, for studies. Uh, is now a place where uh, you see more and more people um, interested. And um, I think that will make give some um, uh, equilibrium to this um, uh, to, to the, the analysis of the Middle East and North Africa. And I think now people, when they will, uh, because, you know, we, we often say MENA, but usually most of the work is about the ME and not about uh, NA. But now yeah. I think it's more and more both of them. I think that's a really valid point. Yeah, a lot of it is is certainly the, the ME rather than the NA. I wonder, just mm. um, building on that slightly, what's your take on the, on the broader move to try and decolonize the name of this region, given this distinction between "quote unquote" Middle East and North Africa, mm-hmm. to what extent do you buy into this this broader move towards West Asia or uh, mm-hmm. Southwest Asia and North Africa? Mm. Well, I think um, with history, we need we need to always revise history and history concepts. Um, and now is a time when um, a lot of things that were uh, established in the previous centuries uh, are now being put into question um, with regards to uh, race, with regards to um, colonialism, imperialism, etc. So, of course, Middle East and North Africa, this this is, uh, I mean, this r- r- corresponds to um, imperial um determinations or imperial uh, denominations um, that um, it's, it's good that uh, some scholars are now uh, rethinking that and uh, trying to rename that. But where I'm a bit skeptical is that um, usually names when they are given, um, it's really hard to change them. And um, um, broad and general ideas uh, that are well entrenched, it's a little bit difficult to um, just say, okay, we're going to scrap that uh, name and uh, replace it with um, another name which is more politically correct uh, or more um, accurate or less imperialistic. Uh, so I think um, it's a good thing. But then, I mean, I, I just took at in the last 20 years, um, in Lebanon in 2005, there was the um, uh, Cedar, uh, I think they call it Thawrat uh, al-Arz, so the yeah. Cedar Revolution. Yeah. In, uh, um, and I remember by then there were a lot of criticism. This is Orientalism. This is, um, um, I don't know what. And um, we are in 2023. And if you want to to look for that uh, 
uh, thing, that's the name you find. Um, in Tunisia, uh, in 2011, it was the Jasmine Revolution. And um, I mean, I, I never used that term, but even until today, people are still calling it the Jasmine Revolution. Yeah. Uh, the Arab Spring, also same thing. I mean, a lot of people did criticize that. Um, and we, we were not really able to find, uh, I mean, I don't use it. I use Arab uprisings, but... Same. I think it's easier to say Arab Spring, and um, and here I think uh, scholars and intellectuals need to think that their public is not just the scholars and intellectuals who are like them, but they need to move beyond that. So if you complicate things too much, um, actually you will um, people will have more and more difficulties to follow you. Um, that's why, um, again, I mean, I think if we're able to really have a big uh, movement that. Um, that uh, changes the concept totally and uh, uh, we're able to make um, um, West Asia or, or I don't know what's the, the, um, the denomination rather than um, Middle East and North Africa, fine. But otherwise, um, it will stay as an intellectual debate, uh, but for the general public and um, so that we don't mix up people, the current name will uh, remain. Yeah, that, that's really valuable, and I think it, yeah, it points to the complexity and the multifaceted dynamics of these types of initiatives. Um, I remember having these types of conversations with friends from from Palestine in Palestine, and there was a a, a general anger that that Palestinians didn't identify with West Asia; they identify with with uh, Southwest Asia and North Africa. They lived in the Middle East, so I think, as you say, it's there's a, a, a multifaceted set of complexities going on here that require more rigorous engagement. But thank you for sharing that, Yusuf. I think that's that's really valuable. Um, one of the and, and, and sorry, Simon, please. No, I mean one point about this. Um, you know this change of names and um, and you know the the will to change names. That's something, for instance, uh, because you mentioned Palestine in Israel, that's something that the Israelis are trying to do. I mean, and, but the, the, I mean, here we're talking about, uh, we're looking at it from another angle, but this is from a very colonial perspective. So they're changing the names of cities and of uh, institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But you go today and um, you will still find, uh, I mean, most Palestinians and most Arabs would uh, call these cities and these places by their um, pre-1948 pre names. Um, and with all the efforts that um, Israel uh, spent on this, the, the old name um, that was there persists. So it's really, um, I mean, um, that effort, you can put a lot of effort on it, but it, it, it's hard really to, um, to, uh, to change it completely and to have people accept it. Um, yeah. And especially in that case, because for political reasons and for um, all kinds of reasons, people are not accepting it. But also for the general public, um, people are not going to accept it easily. Yeah, of course, of course. One of the reasons that I think there's been this growing interest in North Africa has been the the, the shifting political climate in the in the Maghreb broadly. And I know this is something that that you've been writing on and commenting on over the over the past few years. I wonder if you can just maybe share some broad reflections on the on the transformation of Maghrebi politics in in the past 
three or so years. I know you you did some really interesting mm-hmm. stuff on COVID, for example, and the impact of COVID regulations. But I wonder if you can just reflect on that a little bit, please, Yusuf. Yeah, I mean, and the, you know, the, the Maghreb went through um, a lot of transformations in the last um, 12 years, since 2011. Um, and we, we can see already two major transformations. We have the first one in 2011, and that was the move or the acceleration of um, democratization, or maybe uh, some would call it um, neoliberal um, uh, democratization because we've seen places like um, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, and to a certain extent Algeria not only um, opening up politically but also uh, starting uh, accelerating the move to encouraging the private sector and um, uh, in Libya, of course, after the fall of Gaddafi. Um, so we've seen that in the 2000s, in the 2010s, um, and in the early 2010s, that uh, looked to be the, the, the trend. And that was the direction that this part of the world uh, is taking. Then, of course, with terrorism, with migration to Europe, um, things took another direction. And now, and here I'm talking, I'm, I'm generalizing, so looking the, at the broader trends. So now when we look at, we are in 2023, so the beginning of the 2020s, um, it's another transformation, which is um, rather moving towards more authoritarian systems, um, more um, police-controlled um, regimes, um, places where um, political parties are uh, disappearing or uh, becoming more and more marginal. Um, and, and across the board, across the region, I mean, it's not, uh, although, um, you know, Algeria and Morocco, they, they, they are almost in a state of war, but they have similar policies. Um, Libya is in a state of uh, civil war or uh, post-civil war, and it's a divided country, but it is also adopting laws that target civil society and target um, uh, international uh, donors in the country as if it was um, the, the dictatorship of Gaddafi. Uh, so we see that happening, this uh, authoritarian turn, um, and also with it, um, some ongoing trends of um, um, neoliberalism, be it uh, because pri- privatization is continuing, uh, because also um, we see that uh, uh, the unions in these countries are being uh, attacked or uh, disbanded or marginalized. Um, and also because um, in, these, in all these countries, we see very deep relationships with uh, or, or attempted relationships with the IMF and the World Bank, um, at, again, at different, different angles. But uh, so, so we see, so the new trend, as I said, in the last few years is um, this authoritarian trend. And um, sadly, this is not going to change anytime soon because uh, it is linked to domestic issues, but it is also linked to um, the war on Ukraine, to the post-COVID uh, period, and um, to uh, structures that were already established before uh, the, um, I mean, before COVID. Um, one of them being the issue of terrorism and migration um, that um, strengthened the um, uh, the police. Uh, sector or the police um, or, or let's say the militarized uh, 
um, movement inside these countries at the expense maybe of uh, the political uh, sector. Uh, so now um, people do uh, idealize the army and the police, mm-hmm. but they see the uh, politicians are uh, as people who are completely corrupt, completely useless. And um, for a growing number of uh, citizens from the Maghreb, um, the state should be ruled by the army, by the police, or by uh, the, the, the strongmen, rather than by the corrupt parliaments and the uh, useless political parties. So we see that move towards militarization or military slash police rule, um, even if it's not exactly uh, the way the Latin American juntas and uh, uh, and generals he used to uh, to rule their countries, uh, but at least that's the trend we see today and uh, political parties and also civil society organizations are um, more and more marginalized, which is um, incredible if you look at uh, what the scene looked like just 10 years ago. I mean, that's why I'm saying, I mean, the, the, the country in uh, the, the region in uh, less in, in 10 years or in less than 15 years went through two major transformations um, that um, uh, that are making it um, once again unrecognizable to um, people who, uh, I mean, who, who who do not follow regularly. Yeah, I think that's that's fair, and that's where it it means that your work and the work of others like you speaking to. To, to a range of different audiences with the types of outputs that you're producing is so very important, Yusuf, and it's it's really, really fascinating and valuable, I think, to, to speak with you today and to, to keep reading all this wonderful stuff that you've been producing. So a huge thank you to you for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking with you, and um, I've, I've learned a great deal, as always. Thank you, Simon. I enjoyed the discussion and uh, hopefully we'll uh, see you in Tunis, in sunny Tunis, one of these days. <laughs> I certainly hope so. I'll escape this snow and uh, find some sunshine. So thank you so much, Yusuf. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. Have a nice day. A huge thank you to Yusuf for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at Faila. That's F-A-I-Y-L-A. And it's F-A-I-Y-L-A. So do give him a follow and check out the wonderful work that he and the centre are doing. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time.